0: MailChimp Presents.
1: Oh, hi. You're listening to Call Paul, and I'm Paul Jarvis, your host. I'm currently the co-founder of Fathom, a website analytics company. I've run a bunch of small businesses over the last 20-plus years, and I also wrote a book, Company of One, a book about intentionally growing a small business. In this season of Call Paul, we're talking to small business owners who are in it not just for financial reasons, but for a place to act on their values and make a difference in their industry. Some industries, by virtue of what they create, move at an epically slow pace. Contrary to what some will tell you, this is not a bad thing. Slow means you have time to be considerate, weigh your options, and more importantly, to determine the consequences of the decisions you make and the impact that they'll have on people, communities, and even our planet.
2: It's a very vast network when you actually break it down because we're kind of the top decision maker of this huge triangle tree forest of all of these other things. And so, it's like, okay, well, yeah, you're a small business. What do you really think you're going to change? And then you go, um, actually I handpicked like millions of dollars worth of people and stuff. And so actually we can change quite a bit. That's
1: Kate Fitzgerald, director of Whispering Smith, a staunchly feminist architecture firm working across both residential and commercial projects in Western Australia. I found them through a design newsletter and was drawn to their minimal design choices. Their work also takes into account local craft, carbon neutrality, and even affordability.
2: So Whispering Smith is actually a 1950s Western series, and Whispering Smith is the sheriff. So yeah, that's where the name comes from.
1: What's the story there? Why isn't it your last name? Because I thought most architecture firms just use like the name of the people.
2: It wasn't me, actually. It was um, some mates of mine. They had this great idea, and they were like, oh, what you actually need is like a, a stalwart male figure to to be the spearhead for your firm whispering smith he's like a quiet long range rifleman who vaults onto horses and does all that sort of stuff and so when you start out you've got no portfolio no built work no real idea how to run a business you're right at the bottom and so they were like if you just choose someone really tough and cool to be the the thing that is your company you know that should help get some people over the line
1: can you describe The physical space of your company
2: we rented a ratty old boat electrical mechanics warehouse it's in South Fremantle which is right near South Beach which is this really cute little swimming beach so there's that time of year towards Christmas when (laughs) there's towels hanging everywhere in the office because everyone's everyone's been to the beach and everyone's just like trying to get through those super crazy weeks towards the end but there's a lot of sitting around in your bay there's a towel I think at that time but yeah it's a brick warehouse and we kind of refurbed it and um, split it into um, a bunch of spaces and so we've had over time like a builder an environmental scientist we've had like quite a few people have come and graced us with their time at the space and we had Tuesday lunches um every Tuesday until the the warehouse actually got too full that we couldn't we have a side space in that area with a roller door on the front that faces this really beautiful little residential street that's just off quite a commercial and vibrant little local strip with like a part like a couple of pubs, some bars, some restaurants and cafes and whatever. And so we've been able to use that space as a as a as a gallery. We've had some incredible art. Um, Emerging artist shows there. Um, We've run some business events there. And that's been like, without a doubt, one of the coolest things that we've done as a practice, I think, opening up our space to other creative communities to use.
1: Did you always see yourself running a business?
2: I grew up on a farm. It was a family thing. We had this really awesome farm, um, and my mum and dad and my two brothers, and it's in the middle of nowhere in Victoria on the other side of Australia. I, I obviously had incredible. Parents and a great family. And we always laugh about this. But basically, you look you you got your license when you could reach the pedals. That's kind of <laughs> on the farm. And so even from that point on, you are such an incredibly young person with such an incredibly big responsibility. And it just got to the point where it's like as soon as you can reach the pedals, as soon as you can drive, you get a bunch of jobs. You could be like, oh, I'm just really it's raining outside and I really just want to watch some cartoons, right? But I know if I don't go check that water trough, then, you know, it might be really hot tomorrow and there might be no water in it and a bunch of animals are going to die. So there's like an immediate responsibility thing that happens when you live and work on a farm and you're already in a team and you know that if you don't do that thing, you're only going to let someone else down. And so it was so weird to go from that world to my first ever job in a big architecture practice where you don't have enough skills to really contribute that well to the team. No one really knows your name. Everyone assumes that you can't do anything, which is probably right, and you're just a number wearing your ill-fitting corporate clothes that you've never worn before in your life. And it just seemed like such an enormous waste of potential, especially as a person who'd basically been responsible for huge things as a kid, as a very young kid. And I was like, I just... I think I'm cut out to be responsible for stuff. I don't feel responsible for anything in this environment. I don't feel like I'm impacting this team one iota. And so I was like, that is the opposite of what I want to do. And I knew really early on that I wanted to be super responsible. And I guess that's probably one of the things that makes me a good business owner and a leader and all of those other things.
1: How would you describe Whispering Smith as a company how is it different from the way that other architecture firms are set up and run?
2: Architecture in Australia is a, is a, has been and is a significantly male-dominated profession. It's also not very diverse. I mean, it's pretty white and male, really. Um, and we have some like, major steps to make in that direction. Um, to diversify the profession and we need to do it as quickly as possible. But basically Whispering Smith is different because of its intention to be different. I mean, a lot of architecture practices maybe start up with their intention to be the same, you know, like, oh, these are my idols, list them all off, Cabousia, Mies van der Rohe, all of those um, amazing practitioners that we learn so so much about. But we wanted to start our practice because we knew that there was a lot of things that weren't right about those old big names. Like in in Western Australia, there's a wall of the Australian Institute of Architects, which is, you know, you guys have a similar professional body over there. There, There's a wall in um, Western Australia of all the past presidents and like was really famous for for all being men. Uh, And like since the, you know, early 1900s or something. And it's just this vast wall of men and we had our first president I think in like 2017 or something um first female and so everyone was like oh you know you know you can get really excited about that now because you've you know there's a there's a there's a woman up there and I was like yeah we'll probably get excited in in a hundred years time when there's the equivalent number of women up there um and so yeah this I mean Whispering Smith is different because it intends to be different in a lot of industries, we wouldn't be different. We would just be the status quo. You know, there's a lot of really awesome industries out there that are not battling as much as the architectural um, old school one that I'm in. But yeah, I think that's what probably sets us apart.
1: How do you come up with those as the things that you pick to have the most importance And then how do you ensure that they're put into action and not just like a placard on the wall?
2: One of the things that we have done is we sit down and we go through our goals and our culture and our vision, even as a very small team. We do that every year just to make sure that we're aligned and that everyone's giving their feedback. So Claire, who is one of our team members, had her first baby recently. And so that there was a whole shift with that about, okay, well, you know, we've always said we're a feminist practice and we need to have the best parental leave policy possible for our team. Part of that is like working to draft that policy and make sure that it's the best that we can possibly do for Claire. And I think that is basically saying, okay, we're going to put this flag in the sand. That's going to be our vision. That's our aim. We're going to try and achieve with everything we have that particular culture and those particular values and then we will spend the rest of our lives every single day making sure that we try and measure up to them. There was a pretty great move in world architecture called Architects Declare. Architects Declare is basically the architectural profession acknowledging there is a twin crisis of climate change and biodiversity that's happening, and that buildings are 40% of that equation. So, 40% of the world's carbon emissions are, are from building energy use, basically. That's what we trade in, that's what we produce. It is not the only thing we do because we have many other skills, but basically a lot of the time that is a result of our skill set. And so we as a profession have to work extremely hard to basically have carbon neutral businesses ourselves. We work really hard to make our clients aware and understand and then to make sure that over time every single one of our buildings that we produce is carbon neutral. And I mean, a thousand firms in Australia have signed on to this, Architects Declare. That's again saying, okay, well, We know this needs to happen. We, leaders of the built environment, and as leaders, we need to look inside ourselves and say, what are we doing to contribute to this problem? And, you know, over the last couple of years, even through the pandemic and things, we've changed the way we do things. We switched over to green power straight away. We are now going through the process of actually measuring our carbon and being carbon neutral certified. So that's, you know, that's a big part of it as well. Yeah, it's about saying that you're sustainable, but then also saying okay, here's my documents and here's my policies. And they don't happen all at once. And anyone in a small business would know that it's one thing at a time. For us at the moment, it's all of those maternity leave, the sustainability measurements.
1: Nice. I guess if values that you have are important, but they could be at odds, how do you kind of balance? I guess specifically I'm thinking about balancing affordability and sustainability.
2: We do have to cost everything that we do. We work with quantity surveyors who... Help us in the early phases of a project to quantify everything and make sure that we're on budget. And I think that this conversation about cost and value is really, really interesting, especially in our current paradigm, because at the moment here in Western Australia, a bricklayer is getting paid $1,000 a day a graduate architect is earning i mean the award rate recently changed but like up until this year it was like $56,000 a year and then you've got you know solar panels uh, the the average cost of solar on a house might be somewhere between $5 and $7,000 and so that's having a bricky for 7 days and so we're talking about affordability right and it's constantly referred back to oh my god like architects are expensive and and Sustainability is expensive and having a good design is expensive. And it's like, nah, I'm sorry. Like, so many other things impact affordability that are not those small things that we are doing to make it so much better. I mean, an architect might be somewhere between 10 and 15 or 20% of your overall budget. Or like timber over here, it used to be $3 a length and now it's $6.20. That is a more than a 50% increase. And so, a lot of people have stopped building under those conditions. Like, it's a terrible time in the industry, but people are still managing to do it. I mean, those big, there's those massive volume builder companies, they've absorbed all those price rises and they are still building houses, right? Forget about architecture for a second. At the lowest end of the market, they are still building houses under those costs. And I'm talking probably like a 50, somewhere between a 30 and a 50% price rise. If they can afford to swallow that massive price rise, to go back to my original point, is the extra 5% or whatever it is, the 7 grand for the solar panels, the extra money for the insulation, the extra money for it to be well-designed. Are those something that we can as the community go, okay, well, if we want future generations to not watch the world end, can we cover those costs? And the answer is based on what I've just seen in the building industry. Yeah, we can. And it's time to stop avoiding doing it based on cost, because when the costs rise for other reasons, everybody finds a way to get it done. So it's possible.
1: Hey, I wanted to pause for a quick break. If you're enjoying this season of Call Paul, you'll love a small business story from our friends at Courier, a magazine about working better and living smarter. Founded in 2016 and based in Montreal, Loop Mission is a circular economy project that works with local farmers, restaurants, and factories to upcycle food waste. The company has already saved more than 6,000 tons of fruits and veggies from the landfill, turning it into everything from cold-pressed juices to handcrafted soaps and even dog treats. For the full story, head to couriermedia.com. And if you want more stories like this, you can sign up for their weekly newsletter at couriermedia.com email. So I guess, are there other industries that inspire you outside of architecture?
2: I mean, the tech industry, which is kind of awesome because it's a new industry. So it, it didn't professionalize back in the early 1800s in London. Like when you look and you feel the vibe of architecture and where it's come from, it's colonialist. Like you split the titles up, get the land, you build the thing, that's it. And it's it's that shift of really embracing what architects do, which is design thinking and, and being able to manage an enormous amount of information across so many different things. And I think that that is what we do. It is not what people think we do. People think we make buildings when actually we're capable of managing and perceiving, that is what that huge degree is for. It's to help you perceive things, to understand things, to ask the right questions and to get the information that no one else even knows is there or is relevant.
1: One of the things that i've read from other interviews that you've done is that you said that business as usual is the enemy and kind of what we're talking about just now as well the the way things are running isn't benefiting the planet for one or benefiting people just being able to afford a place to live (laughs) for two right so then if business as usual is the enemy then what unusual things need to happen in the industry or in the housing market in general to make it better
2: it's complicated, but again, it's about intent. Whispering Smith is a very, very small company, for example. Um, and when we decided to do our maternity leave policy, I didn't go, oh, well, well, you know, first off, I'll look at my bottom line and I'll work out. And this is what you should do as a business, right? You, you know, that's a responsible thing to do as a director. Um, I'm gonna, and I'm going to work out what we can afford. And that is not how any business sets their ideal targets. I mean, when you're working out how much profit you're going to make, you don't go, oh, well, I'll work out how much I can possibly make and then I'll accept that. You sort of sit there and you, you work out your goals and your visions as a business and as a group and as a team and you go, okay, well, I think we want to try and produce a 30% profit margin this year because we know we have to support Claire in this time and we're going to need support when Claire's not here. So that means we're going to try and achieve that because that's our, that's our vision and that's our goal and that's what we need to achieve. And when you start setting targets and working towards them, things become magically easier. You know, when everyone is united in that vision to achieve something, it happens really quickly. I mean, we've done so many great things for the environment as an entire nation and everyone's like, oh, it's really hard. And I'm like, yeah, but it's actually just that you need everyone to have the intent to want to do that. Didn't we get rid of fluorocarbons? The things that come in spray cans?
1: Yeah. I remember in the, I think in the eighties, there was like a hole in the ozone layer and then it, there wasn't one anymore.
2: Right. And it was all just like, oh no, this is really bad. We stopped using that and bang. And it was done and it was finished. I just feel like it's been, you know, since 1991, we've known about this and there has just been an absolute reluctance to accept that we all need to look at ourselves and change. And I think that that's across so many different things in the world. And I think that the great thing about the architectural profession that I think I'm so proud about, and I think that's where it's leading, is that we literally sent that thing around and said, we're leaders, we take responsibility for that 40%. That is on our watch. We didn't do all of those buildings, but basically that is us. That is what we produce. And it's time for us to produce stuff that's better, that doesn't do that. And so we'll fix our part of it. You know, that's the mindset of a small business. That's where the change comes from.
1: I fully agree. It seems to be that small businesses prove out things and then big businesses are like, oh, well, we could probably do that too.
2: I mean, to just take it back, we looked up our best maternity leave policy in the ASX 200 and we were like, we'll do that. So if the best 200, this is the best of the best 200 companies on the share market in Australia can achieve. We're to find the best one. We'll copy that. And it's actually better than like so many others, you know, and then, but what the one thing that I did notice when I was looking up, these maternity leave policies of the big corporations is that some of the in the last two years, a huge number of them have dramatically fixed or increased their parental leave policy. I was like, oh, my God, this this is literally this two year thing where an entire shift is happening across all of these corporations. Was it affordable for them? (laughs) To suddenly turn around and pay everyone twice as much paid parental leave as they did before, or to give it to all the dads who were only getting a miniature amount of weeks and now get the same to be a carer as well? Was that affordable? Like, of course, it wasn't if you look at it purely as dollars and cents, of course, it wasn't affordable, but they made a goal and a target and they have a vision for it and they achieved it. And so it's like, okay, well, the world is actually shifting in the right direction.
1: I think as well. Uh, A lot of it is too narrow a thinking. If you just look at that one aspect of it where if it costs you twice as much to pay somebody on mat leave than you paid before, I don't think it necessarily costs you twice as much, right? Because I think your employee retention of that person wanting to come back and work at the same company after that time is probably going to be higher. And churning companies, I don't know what it's like over there, but in North America, people have been not wanting to work at the jobs if they don't like it, if they don't have benefits that support themselves, if they don't have a living wage, that sort of thing. So I think it does impact dollars and cents in a positive way to do the right thing most of the time. But I think a lot of companies don't consider that or they don't consider it until it's been proven out. Like, oh, why why does this small business have no like turnover. Oh, it's because they don't do shitty things to, <laughs> to the people that work for them.
2: We love our team, you know, why would we want them to feel like they're not being supported and be sad at the like most wild time of their lives, which is having a baby, you know, and bringing another little human into the world. Who would leave them out in the cold at that time? I mean, come on.
1: So how do you take care of yourself? Like in terms of like mental health.
2: We've fostered a, a real environment of each person being in themselves a leader. And that doesn't mean the traditional sense of the leader. That means like really understanding that with the way you phrase something and the way that you communicate um, has a profound effect on the person who sits next to you. Everyone knows that awful feeling when there's someone disruptive or argumentative in a room. You just want to get out of there. And that, I mean, I think that that is one of the key things about being in a small team that matters so much. And it also, it's not just inside the team, right? It's also all of the people we deal with in the construction industry. So we partner with really amazing people to build our projects. There is like no gender inequality on our sites we walk on there and we know that people respect us and respect our position and you know that there's never any negativity which is a really this that is an incredible thing in itself so firstly you're stepping into the office and everyone is stoked to be there then you're stepping onto a site and everyone is stoked to be there and happy with what they are achieving and feeling like we're all on the same team you know And then you go out into your outer world as well. You've got your clients. So we're really specific about what clients we deal with. And architecture is so hard. It goes for so long. And right now it is horrifyingly expensive for our clients. And it is stressful for our builders who are dealing with such incredible price rises in such a short amount of time trying to deliver projects and not go broke themselves. Like it is fundamental that our relationships are good. And we set those up in time, when times are good so that it, when times are bad, where we've got each other's backs. And I know that that's not necessarily what you asked me in commenting about self-care because probably everyone thinks about self-care as not being in the workplace. But I feel like if I'm going home at night time, with a smile on my face and I'm not stewing about all of these bad experiences I had with people at my work. That's been one of the greatest things that we've done as a practice.
1: People always used to challenge me on that. They're like, you can pick your clients because you're in a place where you can pick your clients. And I would always say, no, I'm in the place where I can pick my clients because I've always picked my clients because... That is the most important thing. Like That's where I'm going to be happy, like you said, to to start work and to finish work every day. That's where it's not going to turn badly and then we have to argue about legal stuff. If that is taken care of, if I pick correctly, and I didn't always pick correctly, I sometimes made the wrong choices.
2: Man, we still make the wrong choices, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but if that happens far less than you picking the right people to work with, then that takes care of so much in work like that takes care of just almost everything else is is manageable or doable if the relationships with the people that you have to work with from vendors like you said to clients to the coworkers that you have if that's taken care of then it's just so much better
2: It's so much better. And you're building something that is much bigger than yourself. Like a lot of people work on our buildings over the time. Like we have an entire team of consultants, like engineers, electrical engineers, mechanical building surveyors, like all of that stuff. We're all commissioning them on behalf of our client quite a lot of the time. And then you've got the builder who, you know, takes over the project as the key leader of that part of it. And then they commission an enormous number of trades to be part of that project and then there's suppliers and it's just it's a very vast network when you actually break it down because we're kind of the top decision maker of this huge triangle tree forest of all of these other things and so it's like okay well yeah you're a small business who what do you you know what do you really think you're going to change and then you go um actually I handpicked millions of dollars worth of people and stuff and so actually we can change quite a bit and we can talk about those people and that stuff in a way that is really positive and showcases like how awesome they are and that's actually quite powerful in itself
1: When your industry is dominated by a very homogeneous group of folks with similar backgrounds, similar educations, similar everything, it can end up with near identical results. If you do things the same as everyone else, even if you succeed, is it really achieving anything if someone else defined it for you? When an industry is shaken up with diverse people and views, well, then things can get interesting that opens up space for us to go after our own unique definition of success. This is precisely what draws others to our work. Prioritizing new values, just like the process of architecture itself, can take a long time to become part of an industry. And sure, it can be discouraging sometimes, but it doesn't mean we should stop acting to make these changes. When building anything, from a house to a business, it's important to consider not just succeeding, but how we lay the foundation of values to achieve our own unique and sustained version of success. Next week, I'm chatting with a guy named Joe, who runs an organic farm called Dirty Girl. I hope you'll join us. Call Paul is a MailChimp original podcast. The show is made possible with the help of the whole amazing team, Julie Douglas, Ruth Eddy, Sasha Brown, Tierra Darnell, Kaida Jesus, and Zoe Culkin. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player so you can check out all of our other episodes and seasons. Oh, and if you want more awesome podcasts, go to MailChimp.com slash presents.
0: Wanna know what makes a successful email marketing strategy? Well, You could figure out a way to analyze millions of data points from other emails or you could spend months researching the most relevant content, subject lines and target audiences for your business. But if you don't have that type of data or that type of time, then you might need some help. That's where MailChimp comes in. MailChimp sends out billions of emails and analyzes millions of data points to offer personalized recommendations for your small business like setting up a weekly automation that sends your meditation guide to your audience every Sunday evening with a link to book their next session at your spa. These recommendations can improve your email content, subject lines, targeting, marketing automations, and so much more. Stop wasting time guessing about your marketing strategy and start utilizing informative, personalized, data-backed recommendations from Mailchimp. Guess less and sell more with the number one email marketing and automation brand. Intuit Mailchimp. Learn more at Mailchimp.com. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022.